Now, I have a bunch of notes in front of me, and I'm going to be looking at them often, so I don't want you to go, oh, he's not engaged. You know, if I don't, then I'll just wander too much. I get too excited and wander off. So here's the deal. We're going to turn our attention now to the gospel of the kingdom. So open your Bibles. Woo, thank you. My dad said he's praying for me today. I feel the sense of uh, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So let's open your Bibles to uh, the book of Matthew chapter 9. We're going to, again, turn our attention to the gospel, remembering that it is the singular uh, greatest unchanging dynamic in a changing world, that nations rise and fall, and uh, uh, the whole world uh, changes generation upon generation. But his word shall never fail. This is the greatest thing that we can attach. We can tether our lives to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you now uh, for the life that you have breathed as you have breathed out your word. Now we pray that the very breath of the Holy Spirit would be upon every home, every heart. Lord, I pray that people would get their Bibles, would get their notebooks. Lord, that they would, they would open their hearts and their minds to the scripture, Lord, that what you have to say to us today would encourage, would inspire, would edify, would build us up. Lord, that you would continue by the ministry of your word to, to continue to make us into ever-increasing expressions of Christ. Lord, we thank you for the strength, the hope, the life, the wisdom that is in the scriptures that your Holy Spirit breathes into and upon us now, this again, afresh this morning. And if you are comfortable in your homes to say amen with me, amen. I heard Mrs. Dav say amen. I don't know about my children. They're off. There they went right there. <laughs> there you go. Thank you very much. All right. So we're praying for revival in your homes. We're praying that your homes are sacred spaces for the presence of God. Now, our, the, the title of, the, of our series is Follow Me, uh, and that is because it, uh, we are following the life and ministry of Jesus in the Scripture so that we can follow the life and ministry of Jesus with our lives. And Matthew records for the reader what the, what the, he records the words and the works of Jesus so that we can believe in and be like Jesus. If I was in a room, I, that would be your response to say, yes, amen, that's right. But I suppose if you're by yourself, you'd be like, why is he? It'd be funny to watch this on mute. Don't watch it on mute, but it'd be funny. Okay. Uh, let's, I want to just pause because we're about to read something that is going to be Important, a little bit different, but we're going to read something that's uh, very, very familiar, okay? Uh, it, and and uh, it's important to remember this, that if we are able, as we're reading the gospel, if we're able just to read a passage and respond to it by going, uh, yep, then it's quite probable that we are under-interpreting uh, uh, that passage, that we are not, we don't, basically, if, if we're able to go, ah, yep, sure, I got it, moving on, then we probably haven't got it. Uh, and that doesn't mean that there's some sort of secret knowledge, some sort of a Gnostic arrogance that we have to approach Scripture with. But it's quite possible that our familiarity with the passage has obscured its, its real power. Uh, at no point in any of these Gospels, so particularly like we're in the book of Matthew, so let's just say Matthew. At no point does Matthew intentionally record something insignificant. Everything recorded is intended to be incredibly significant for eternity, for our lives. We must be ready, as we're reading the Gospels, we must be ready to be shaken by what we read. 
especially consider that everyone who's, who is a, a, in the immediate audience, re, remember, as, as people are participating in this li, in, in live time, all we do is keep hearing people gasp, shout, grumble, uh, fall over. Uh, everyone responds with tremendous like shock and awe and wonder and praise. So if we're reading this and we're like, yep, yeah, next, next, we just might be missing something. So uh, this morning's message reminds us that, that, that we cannot settle for an interpretation that's merely perfunctory when it's intended to be powerful. Amen went right there. This morning's message, in particular, is at great risk of being underinterpreted and underresponded to. Why is that? Because it is one of those widely known, ubiquitous sayings of Jesus. I got a, I'm not rolling my daughter under the bus, but she illustrated it perfect for me. I was talking to her about this passage, and she said, "Oh yeah, Dad, I feel like that passage is just tagged at the end of every, you know, every story I ever hear in the Bible." And I hear it, and I say, "Oh yep, that there's that one again," and it's true. Uh. And also, this is one of those passages that, 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 that people massage their own meaning into it. It's, it. it's a wonderful proof text passage for people just to take it and make it what they want into it. Here's the deal. Because uh, we're about to hear Jesus refer to, get ready for it, sewing new patches onto old garments and new wine into new wineskins. That's right. And uh, this is one of those mini parables that people quote, especially the new wineskins. They're like, you know, new wineskins need new, you know, new wine, new wineskins. Uh, you know, that's out with the old, out with the old, in with the new. People use this to proof text every new idea they have. They have a new idea and they say that their idea clearly has to be uh, embraced because after all, new wineskins. <laughs> well... There's plenty of Bible to support creativity. There's plenty of Bible to support innovation and wisdom and new solutions. Thank God that there is. But the passage this morning is not Jesus' generic proof text for us to cite at a business meeting or to quote during a sales pitch. <laughs> this morning's message affirms a truth that transcends time and eternity. What this passage claims is that Jesus came to give new life and ultimately to make all things new. Here's the passage. Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse uh, 14. Then Jesus' disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wine skins. If they do, the skins will burst the wine will run out and the wine skins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wine skins and both are preserved. Whew. Lord, help us today by your Holy Spirit to understand and to respond uh, powerfully, Lord, to this, Im this, this immeasurably important and hope-filled message. Amen. The title this morning is called Happy Hour. <laughs> Happy hour, Jesus gives new life. Uh, 
So and we so we want to that's we're gonna those not only is that the title that's essentially the two parts of the message, but they work together. But uh, here we go. How does it start? It starts with verse 14. Then John's disciples come to Jesus and ask him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? <laughs> well, first of all, who's talking to Jesus? These are the, these are the disciples of John. Now, this is uh, probably, if we're, if we're counting, the third group of people to come and ask Jesus why he different. The scribes have asked him. The Pharisees have asked him, and now John's disciples are saying, why are you different? This might be a good time for the reader to go, hey, wait a minute. Jesus is different. He is noticeably different than, so far, three major religious, not groups, but uh, the scribes were, again, non, they weren't necessarily a part of a, a restricted to a certain religious group. They were more academic then the Pharisees were hyper-religious, super good religious people. And then John's disciples were disciples of John. And they probably, uh, we know the Pharisees fasted on Mondays and on Thursdays, which coincided with the days that everyone went to the market so that everyone would see them fasting and think they were really spiritual. We've covered that. The, the disciples of John, we aren't given a lot of information on their fasting uh, pro, pro, uh, practice, but... We can infer some things. John lived in the wilderness. A lot of his behavior was very much like the Qumran community, the Essene community. So it's very likely that the disciples of John practiced a form of fasting that reflected that mindset. Stay with me. This is not just trivia. That the disciples of John are fasting in a way that expresses uh, deep grief over sin, deep grief uh, over their sin, the sins of others. It's a, it's a fasting that is that is deeply, uh, that expresses regret and mourning and repentance. Now, the, the Pentateuch only prescribes one day of fasting a year on the Day of Atonement. That's a day that, that on the Day of Atonement, people fast as an expression of repentance. But they have taken this far, they, they took that and said, hey, moderation is for chumps, and they went for it. And uh, so what we have here is the disciples of John practicing what we would call asceticism, severe self-discipline, abstaining from food or drink for periods of time, maybe even in, in, inflicting upon themselves intentional discomfort as a way to express mourning over sin, and even as a means to protest or resist, trying to resist, trying to resist sinful impulses. So they're mourning over the practice of sin, and they engage in this asceticism in order to resist sinful impulses. And they're and in doing so, these they, they are they are they believe that they are practicing robust religion and something that, that, that needs to be done. Now, fast forward. The Apostle Paul will write to, to the church in Coloss, and, who, and some of these Colossians had picked up some of this behavior. They had picked up some of this mentality, thinking that this is what it meant to try to practice righteousness. But listen to what Paul says. He says, he says he's quoting them, Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. This is Colossians 2.21. Do not taste, do not touch, do not handle. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based merely on human commands and teachings. Meaning these weren't originated in by God. Such regulations have an appearance of wisdom, but their self-imposed worship, their, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, they, but they, they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. They lack any value in restraining, in controlling 
the sinful desires. Just imposing outside standards aren't producing righteousness. They don't, they, there is no hope in that behavior. Paul recognizes that, that, uh, that this harsh treatment of the body has no value to conquer sin. That's why the actual, he leads up to that instruction in verse 20. He said, since you died with Christ to the elemental forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Paul is saying that your external stuff, these, these, these external behaviors, have no power to conquer the power of sin. Only by participating... In Christ's death and resurrection, can we do that? We are only free by, by participating in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here's the spoiler alert for this morning's message. I think a little heads up might actually speed up our appreciation of what Jesus is saying. The disciples of Jesus didn't fast. They actually just finished a feast at Matthew's house in celebration of the mercy and hope that Jesus provides. Their behavior was quite unlike the rigorous, the, the rigorously uh, vigorous conduct of the day. The, 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 the religious conduct of the day was characterized by routine, by avoidance of any appearance. Anything that appeared to be shame, they avoided that. They avoided shame by association with anything. They accumulated honor by the appearance of merit by performance. So they avoided shame by association. They acquired merit by performance. It was a. It was very. Um, it was heavy. It was. It was laborsome. It was a heavy yoke. And so their question, the disciples of John, come. Come to, come to Jesus and his disciples. They come to Jesus and his disciples and, and they, they're, they're questioned. They say, well, how come you fast? And how come you guys don't fast, but we do? Or rather they say, how come we fast and you don't? Their, disciple, their, their question may actually sound like this. How come your disciples are happy, but no one else is? Don't your disciples know how agonizingly in bad shape we all are spiritually? And here's how Jesus answers. Verse 15. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? Now this is where you should gasp. I hear some of my children gasping in the next room. I appreciate that. This is where you should gasp. And I mean really gasp. This is where your jaw should drop and even shout. And if it's not, it's only because we, don't, we aren't aware of what Jesus just said. <laughs> because first we need to recognize what Jesus just claimed about himself. He said, I'm the bridegroom. I'm the, I'm the, 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 the husband, capital H. Well, Okay, maybe that maybe that's a nice metaphor, Jesus. Yes, but if we are a first century Jewish community, here's what we heard. We heard Jesus just refer to himself as God and God on a mission. Isaiah 54 verses 4 through 8. Listen to this this is the this is what the the bridegroom is up to, the husband is up to. Do not be afraid, you will not be put to shame. 
Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. Jesus said, I'm the husband, meaning he just defined himself as the creator. I'm the creator. I'm, I'm El Elyon. I am El. I am El Shaddai. I'm the one. I'm, it's me. I'm the husband. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. Go ahead. This is, where you're, this is the gasping and the jaw dropping. Everyone is in shock what Jesus just said. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He's the Holy One of Israel. He's the Redeemer. He is the God of all the earth. Jesus said, I'm the God of all the earth. <laughs> Woo! The Lord, and then he said, the Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who married young, only to be rejected, says the Lord your God. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with a deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. He says, he is saying, I'm the husband, I'm the bridegroom, I'm here to do what you just read in Isaiah 54. He says similar things in Isaiah 62, 5. In Ezekiel 16, 7, Jesus is saying that he is the bridegroom, he is God, and that what he is doing is fulfilling the hopes represented in Isaiah 54. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, it's happy hour. Further, by comparing his presence with a wedding feast, he is pointing to one of the single greatest seasons of joy and feasting in the life of first century Jews. A, a wedding, a wedding for, in, in Palestine for first century Jewish people was, was just weaved together like your three or four or five or ten of your favorite holidays of festivity, and this is that. This is it. And it's a once, <laughs> it's a once in a lifetime event. Uh, the wedding couple, after after the wedding ceremony, after the wedding ceremony formally, they didn't rush off in a little carriage or uh, or, or a chariot <laughs> on off to a honeymoon. Uh, they honeymooned at home with everybody. Meaning, their their the days after their wedding was a public uh, uh, party. It was it was it was characterized by supreme joy and celebration. For, the, the, for those days, they, they dressed in their finest clothes and had the finest food and the finest beverages, and they conducted themselves like a king and a queen entertaining uh, their court. And people would come in with, and, and it would be, and the honorable thing to do was to, was, to part, was to partake and to participate and to celebrate and to have joy. And it would be supremely out of place for someone to come into one of those wedding feasts, you know, in shaggy clothes and, fa and unshaven and hair all undone saying, well, you know, I've been fasting because things are bad. Things weren't bad. At a wedding feast, this is the, the greatest celebration of joy. This was happy hour. Because what they were celebrating, they were celebrating with thanksgiving and with joy and anticipation. You've got to hear this. What were they celebrating? <laughs> they weren't just celebrating love, love, true love. <laughs> they were celebrating the anticipation 
of a brand new beginning. You've got to feel this. They were celebrating the launch of something new. The union of this man and wife represented something that had never been before. It was a brand new family, a brand new journey, a brand new thing was just launching and they were celebrating it. They were, are you hearing me? They were celebrating something new. It was happy hour. So when Jesus says to them, why the... the the guests of the, of the bridegroom don't mourn while he is with them. He is equating, he is defining, according to the question of the disciples of John, he is defining fasting with mourning. And the fasting that, they were, that the disciples of John were insisting on was an expression of mourning, while Jesus says, you don't fast during happy hour. Now, verse 15 continues... Uh, Jesus says, the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. And this is where a lot of people say, oh, well, yeah, that makes sense. For, uh, that's Jesus, is, you know, he's ascended, to the, he's ascended to heaven, and boy, now, bless God, we better, we better, we better get back to that fasting. Too bad, we, <laughs> too bad we missed happy hour. You know? <laughs> too too bad we missed happy hour. Yeah, I close at nine, and you guys are here at nine thirty-five. And no, listen, stop. That's not it. Don't don't knee-jerk react. Listen to the Paul Harvey here. That Jesus said the time will come when the the Paul Harvey is the rest of the story. From the the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and a consortium of very conservative and very smart scholars agree that the language here. See, the, the language here will be taken from them. If he's talking about a bridegroom, and, he, and, he's, and he's talking about it in this context, that would be, again, that should be like shock. Can you, there, the, the, he's saying, that it would be, wouldn't, it, wouldn't, wouldn't it feel like a shock if right in the middle of the ceremony, the bridegroom is, is, is not, doesn't just disappear, but is, but is violently uh, taken away from the party? That would be an immediate shock, wouldn't it? And that's what he's saying here, is that, that, there's a, that there, there will come to Jesus' disciples a sudden, violent, and shocking taking away of the bridegroom. Jesus is hinting here of his upcoming passion, just as he has been. He's been telling them, and he'll tell them more, that, that, that the Son of Man will be betrayed, he'll be handed over, etc., etc. We'll hear that. And when this happens, his followers will react. They will respond in total dismay and in shock. They will be in deep and immeasurable mourning as they behold the slaughter of their master. But it won't stay that way. Indeed, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the most horrible event in history. Never before or since has such innocence and such majesty been so unjustly, brutally taken away. But, in, in referring to him being taken away, it's best to understand that Jesus is referring to his passion and not to the post-Easter season. Because... This depiction of, well, then they'll mourn, then they'll fast. That depiction of mourning 
doesn't fit the rest of the story. In other words, they will mourn on Friday, but Sunday is coming. The post-Easter, the post-resurrection climate of the disciples was more joy than they could ever measure. Jesus is alive. Hallelujah. He is risen. He is risen indeed. We're two weeks away from shouting that at each other. And that was supreme joy. And then, so his life with them post-resurrection is in this resurrected body characterized by wonder and joy and awe. And what does he keep saying? What does the book of Matthew itself promise us that Jesus literally says to them? He says, and lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. Right now, church, it's still happy hour. I'm shouting in my own house. It's still happy hour. He's still with us. He's still giving us his Holy Spirit. This is not the season of mourning. We're not looking backwards saying, golly, I wish it were back then. Absolutely not. He says, it is to your advantage that I go, because if I don't go, then the helper can't come. And the helper will be an immediate, transformative, personal, powerful presence with you. He'll be with you forever. Understand. That this, the moment of, of, of mourning was during those hours on the cross and in the tomb. But this is happy hour. We still, you and I are still uh, awaiting his return to bring us back to his father's house. So there is a, there is an already present with us, and yet there's still a sense of anticipation. But our anticipation isn't ayayufna. Our, our anticipation is hallelujah. Our waiting is not characterized by mourning, but by the joy and gratitude that is ours because of the seal of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the deposit and the first taste of the feast that is yet to come. When the midnight cry will go forth and the bridegroom and the cry will come out, the bridegroom cometh. And then he shall rend the skies with a blast of a trumpet and he shall make all things new and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Even you and I who did not behold him in the flesh. Look at, listen to what the Apostle Peter tells us. In, uh, we, 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 we know of the presence of his spirit. We live in joyful hope of his return. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy in his happy hour. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So, dear friends, I have good news for you. It is still happy hour. And here's how Jesus illustrates that. Go right to verse 16. Don't separate these out. Go right into verse 16 and 17. To illustrate what he was saying and to show that the question or the demand to mourn in grief is no longer... Appropriate That longing for deliverance is, is no longer appropriate. He gives two parables. And in these two parables, remember, there's a singular point. Jesus came to give new life, to make us new, and ultimately to make all things new. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the old patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. 
if he's just saying that putting a putting a brand new patch on an old garment, uh, the the brand new patch once it's washed or whatever, it'll it'll adjust in time. It'll it will shrink and it will pull away from the the old garment and it'll tear both of them. It'll make everything worse, right? What is Jesus saying? Let's just be really clear and quick. Jesus did not come to put a new patch on an old thing. He did not come to patch up Judaism. He did not come to put a patch on the rough spots in humanity. He did not come to make you into a quilt. Then the next parable. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, those skins will burst. The, old, the wine will run out. The wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. New wine, <laughs> new wine, and they, Jesus, Jesus' audience understood this. New wine is wine that is, that is still in the fermenting process. New wine is still bursting with bubble and air. Now, I'm not, a, I'm not a winologist. I don't really know how to make this stuff, but I do know that it does that. There's gases and, and, and bubbles, and, and it's effervescent. It's burgeoning. New, new wine is burgeoning with new life. It's like, it's, like a, it's like having a middle schooler in your house during quarantine. It's like, I mean, it, this is new wine. And you can't put new life into, and, and you, can't, you can't stick it inside an old cardboard box. It, it, it doesn't work. It, the wine will burst out. The cardboard box will blow up. It doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. Nobody would do that. If you put new wine into an old wineskin, the wineskin has already been stretched. It had, it's, it's already been uh, grown accustomed to things, and that thing will burst out. Now, again, this is not some sort of a proof text to say, oh, we need a new, we, see, we need new wineskins. Jesus said it, so we should buy a new copier. No. This is not a proof text for nonsense. This is a message that Jesus came to bring, that what Jesus came to bring cannot be contained by the old mentality of mourning and ritual and routine. It can't be contained. He said, you can't take what I'm bringing and stuff it into what you've been doing. It doesn't fit into the nationalism of the Pharisees. It doesn't fit into the isolated asceticism of John's disciples. It cannot be contained by temple rites and rituals. It cannot be contained in the borders of Jerusalem or the boundaries of the nation of Israel or even in the ethnic line of patriarchs. All that preceded Christ signified and anticipated what he would do. What has preceded Christ was the invitation to happy hour. Before there was waiting. Before there was longing. Before there was mourning. All of it in anticipation for the hour to come. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. This idea of waiting for a deliverer. The deliverer has come. And he's coming again. The hour has come and we can never return to the way it was before. Can you imagine that the paraphrase of what Jesus is saying to John's disciples? 
He's saying, boys, the hour, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. That's a horrible analogy. Uh, but you, but that's the same principle. You can't put new wine into old wineskins. You can't take the life that is breaking forth and bursting out and burgeoning on, onto creation and shove it back into an old way or an old way of thinking, an old way of, of feeling. You can't shove this new life back into a, the routine of mourning. The wake is over. It's happy hour. Jesus, when he is, when he, when he talks about that back that you, this new wine, a new a new new it's it's a new 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 uh, new fabric and uh, and new wine, he's saying that he has come to make us new and ultimately all things new. Jesus is saying to you and I, nothing will ever be like it used to be. It cannot. It's all new. Remember, Jesus Christ makes us new. This is what Paul says to the Galatian church in chapter 6 and verse 15. He says, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. The old measurements, the old rituals do not accomplish anything. He said, What counts is the new creation. What do you mean by new creation? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The language there is so strong, if you look at it, it really has a strong implication that, what, that if any person is in Christ, they are something that has never existed before. They are the, they are the start of a brand new thing. As if it were a wedding feast. The old is gone, the new is here. This is what Paul says. The old is gone, the new is here. Not just someday will be, the new is here. Consider that not only does Christ make you and I new, when we, put our, when we look to him, when I put, we put our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and does something supernatural in us that, is, that, that transforms us, that is more powerful and more permanent than any external exercise, any external mark, any external behavior. What we, of course, live out, we live because of what the Holy Spirit does in us, but we don't cause it. We live because of what he does, we don't cause it. We, in, we live in this response. The way that we live is because of what the Spirit of God has done in us. And it's a brand new thing. And it starts the moment that we put our faith in Christ. We are, we, the Holy Spirit, uh, 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 we, are, we, are, we are baptized. We, we are, we are, he, 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 he associates us. We die with Christ. Paul said, you have died with Christ and you've been raised up. There is something that has died. The old way, the old mourning, the old longing, the old power of sin, the old everything has been buried. And you have been raised up. All things are become new. You are new now. And yet that process has begun. There is when Jesus Christ himself was raised from the tomb, there's something started that cannot be stopped. Something started that changed the cosmos forever. And it will come, and it's growing, and it's growing, and it can't be stopped. And everyone that has faith in Christ begins to participate in it. And we experience new life, and we have this hope. Because when he, ra when he was raised from the dead, the Bible said he is the first fruits. He is, uh, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, Paul says in Colossians 1.18. He's the firstborn, meaning that, that all of creation is going to be made new. Jesus first, 
He's the first one. He's the testimony. He's the example. And then the Holy Spirit helps us to participate in his new life. Ultimately, this is what we're waiting for. Are you ready? Revelation chapter 21. This is the end result. This is why you can't put new wine into old wineskins because the new wine will eventually look like this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That's new wine. If I was in a room and you were being quiet, I'd say, oh, you don't get it. <laughs> That's the new wineskins. <laughs> Everything new. A new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. We talked about that, by the way. That means there's no more uh, ground swell of godless humanity. Then I saw the Holy City, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. A bride. A bride dressed for her husband. And I heard the loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now with the people, and he himself will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and he himself will be with them, and he, and he will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. Jesus gives new life. Jesus makes all things new. And what he has started cannot be contained and it cannot be restrained. It can only be celebrated. It is happy hour. And that is what it means to follow Jesus. We live in this day. We live between the advents of Christ. But we are not in a, in, a, in, a, in a period of mourning. We are in a period of anticipation. The hope of His return, the power of His Spirit with us now, work together to create a life that is lived with hope, with gratitude, and anticipation. Of course we we are like Paul and we long, we, and, and the, Reve, the book of Revelation says, even so, come Lord Jesus. Of course there's a longing, but it's not a longing of mourning and sorrow and routine and heaviness and slavery again to the law or to sin. It is, a, it is, the, it is the longing of hope and anticipation. It gives us strength and patience to endure everything else. If Jesus, if this is happy hour, if, if he is making all things new, then anything in the meantime is temporary. And we, can, we are well able to endure and to overcome. My friends, even if it looks weird out there and there's, people are quarantined and they're talking about all kinds of stuff, listen, change the subject. Don't participate in the morning. 
if you if you start acting funny and people say, oh, how come the disciples of Jesus are happy and everybody else is sad? Say, well, it's happy hour. Even in the presence of threat, you know there's nothing temporary that can overcome what Christ has already accomplished. Nothing. Our destiny has been set in motion and set in place. He has made us new. His spirit is with us. He has sealed us with his spirit. And we await for the time when everything will be made new. And so in the meantime, we celebrate in hope and joy and in great and strong perseverance. Let me pray with you today. Friend, if you're tired of trying to put up with patches, just stop. Jesus hasn't come to patch up your old life or to wrap you up with duct tape and chicken wire and hope for the best. The promise of Christ is that the old way of life, the brokenness, the habits, the vices, it can just die. Be buried. And that you can live now by the power of the Spirit. You live in vital contact with the Holy Spirit to follow Jesus, to believe in Him and to be like Him, to imitate Him and to obey Him. That you bear upon your person the seal of eternity, of new life, The scripture promises that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1. Know this, friend, no matter what challenge you're facing right now, it's temporary. It cannot resist the power of the new creation that is alive in you and anticipating all things to be made new. You may not be, you may, it's a process. He didn't make things, he didn't instantly make you perfect, but he made you new. There is hope, there is power, there is promise today. Father, in the name of Jesus, let bring us fresh, Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, bring us fresh into vital contact with your spirit today. Let us taste the, the bursting freshness of new wine in our person. Let us throw off and cast aside every, every weight that weighs us down, every sin that so easily entangles. Help us resist the, the pressure from elsewhere to, to uh, put our confidence in ritual or routine or to think that we have to merit our way where we accept that you have come to do what we could never have make us new come and do that work in our life today we pray we welcome you Holy Spirit Amen
God bless you, friends. We'll try to hit, we'll try to pray and touch base with you uh, as the week continues. I pray that today, today Sunday, I just let I just pray that today in particular is marked with the air of uh, of happy hour. God bless you.